Good morning. Hey. <laughs> no, it's all good. I well, according to that, we got what? We got like 20 seconds, according to my watch. I'm a very prompt. I'm going to start on time. Um. We'll dive in. Any questions anybody has about anything? Where is that? There it is. Yeah, John. You're not going to ask when Jesus is coming back, are you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Because I screwed up. So <laughs> the question was, why did we, because we started kind of singing matins, why didn't we do the whole darn thing? And it's because I pulled forward an old bulletin and then I got sidetracked and I forgot to add it back in. It was my screw up. I, in fact, we got there, and I was like, I looked at it, and I was like, oh, sorry. We'll get there. We'll get there. Last week, you know, Divine One, we actually kind of packed that stuff back in there, and I just missed it. I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. Again, Longman. Yeah. Um, here, actually, there's actually a better answer to that or a deeper answer to that. The question was, why didn't we stand for the Trinitarian verse on, O God, O Lord of heaven and earth. And it's the last verse. If you're looking at the hymnal, you know it's a Trinitarian verse, one that referenced Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because there's a little triangle next to the verse, next to the verse number. You'll see that. And, and it's almost always the last verse. And it's sort of tradition that when you bump into a verse like that that mentions the Trinity, you stand up out of awe and respect for it. Here's the weird thing that happens. Um, when we produce the bulletins, we use a program called Lutheran Service Builder, which has all of the hymns and all that kind of stuff in it, and we pull that stuff into it. One of the things that doesn't exist within Lutheran Service Builder is the triangle. <laughs> and so sometimes I miss it because I'm looking at what's in the computer program and not what's in the hymnal, and I miss the fact that it was a verse, and, and I overlook it. That's what happened this time. So, so it's a mismatch between hymnal and software program that I overlook sometimes. So as a general rule of thumb, John, the answer to most questions is because Longman screwed up. <laughs> and even if that's not the case, that's the answer I'll go with. Yeah. What else? Other questions? Those are good questions. Thank you. Any other questions about COVID or about worship or about Bible study or anything like that? You guys have asked if we can move back into Classroom 1. Although looking around, I'm wondering if that's even possible. There are a lot of people here today. Thank you. That's awesome. We are going to try and do it. Um, so our, our target, <laughs> Don's over here counting. Um, I think we put as many as 40 in there before. But that's really tight. Um, our target for that is July 4th. Um, I did talk to Libby Garner, who's meeting in Classroom 1 right now. Um, they're going to move back to the conference room. We'll move back to Classroom 1 July 4th, which is the first Sunday in July. Um, so, so I'll remind you between now and then. It would be helpful if somebody gets a wild hair and wants to help. There are still some um, bits and pieces, toys and things like that, that we had to quick move out of those rooms where we had the pipe burst. And they're still stacked on tables in Classroom 1, and they really need to be cleaned and put back into their place. Um, I will try and get to that between now and when we move, but if you get a wild hair and want to help with that, let me know. 
um, I'll take all comers to, to wipe down those toys and put them back in their place. Any other questions? The repairs are all done. Anybody want to guess? Don't do it if you already know the answer. How much it cost to repair the damage that happened from that pipe? Pipe burst and was leaking for about two hours before we got in there and, and stopped it and cleaned it up. You want to guess how much damage that did? A couple of thousand dollars. We could do prices right here. If you guess right but don't go over, closest guess. You think higher. You think 30. Any other guesses? 20? 54. I'm sorry, you went over. <laughs> $30,000. 30, $30,000 to fix all that. Yeah. So, thank God for insurance. Out of pocket was 5000 And we had that squirreled away anyway. Yes, Dave. What? <laughs> Dave's, Dave's point was, while we're in here with echoey and all that kind of stuff, please speak loudly and enunciate. I will also try to repeat questions. Okay? Yay. Dave's getting a hearing aid on Thursday. Um, okay, any other questions? Cool. Let's start with the devotion. Um, for today, our verse is... Gal Oop. Oh, sorry. Galatians chapter 2, verse 17. If we, the same people who are searching for God's approval in Christ, are still sinners, does that mean that Christ encourages us to sin? That's unthinkable. That's the verse. Um, the title of this is Believers Are Still Sinners. And here's what Luther had to say. How can those who have God's approval in Christ not be sinners and yet be sinners at the same time? For the Scripture asserts both about the person who has God's approval. John writes in 1 John 1.8, If we say we aren't sinful, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he also writes in 1 John 5.18, we know that those who have been born from God don't go on sinning. He says the same thing in 1 John 3, 9. Those who have been born from God don't live sinful lives. What God has said lives in them, and they can't live sinful lives. In other words, John is saying that believers don't sin. But if they were to claim that they had no sin, they would be lying. We can see a similar difficulty in the book of Job. God, who cannot lie, says that Job is a man of integrity in Job 1.8. And yet, Job confesses later in Job 9.20 and other passages that he is a sinner. In Job 7.21, he says, Why don't you forgive my disobedience and take away my sin? Now, Job must be telling the truth because if he were lying to God, God wouldn't call him a righteous person. So, Job is at the same time righteous and sinful. If we look at faith, God's laws are fulfilled. Sin is destroyed, and no law is left. But if we look at our corrupt nature, there's nothing good. Therefore, we must remember in English, therefore, we must remember that all of us who are righteous through faith are still sinners. The Latin term for it is simul justus et peccator, which is simultaneously saint and sinner. And it's this weird 
tension that we live in right now, that in faith all of our sin has been taken away, there's no judgment, and yet we still sin. And we all know that's true, and it's hard to wrap your head around it and understand it. But the point is that that tension exists. And while I can't explain it, we just sort of trust that God's Word is true. And that's what faith is all about. Saying that, you know, we still struggle in this sinful body that we have, and yet we know that we're justified because of our faith in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Lord God, Heavenly Father, You have declared us righteous through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, if we look with even a cursory glance at our own lives, we know that we're still sinful. So we give You thanks and praise that because of our faith, our sins will not be punished. That they've already been dealt with on the cross. And while we struggle with this tension throughout our lives here, we look forward to the day when we will be with You in Your presence when everything will be made perfect and where that will no longer be a problem. So keep us today. Guide and lead us in all that we do. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us as we gather around your word to study and learn from it. We pray that you would use those seeds to build up our faith and to strengthen it and to draw us ever closer to you. Um, We ask all of it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we're in... Revelation chapter 4. And again, I'm going to go ahead and I'll give you the whole chapter just so that we kind of have our our context set for us as we begin to talk. Um, This is right after Jesus has dictated letters to the seven churches um, and John has taken down all of that. And all of a sudden, John is transported, we're going to see, into the heavenly throne room where he gets to have a glimpse of kind of what's going on up there. So John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. 
They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Anything that kind of grabbed a hold of you as we read it? Aha moments or observations that you had missed before. Who were the 24 elders? Hold that thought. <laughs> we'll get there. You want to take a guess? We will get there. Um, and if we don't, by the end of the day, I promise I'll tell you. <laughs> All right, so to what event do these 24 elders, whoever they might be, refer in chapter 4, verse 11? walking away from my notes. Chapter 4, verse 11 is... It's right at the end. Yeah, creation. Yeah, they mention creation. So, so their point, they fall down to worship um, God the Father on the throne, and they say, hey, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Like, like it's totally appropriate that we're worshiping you because, the very end of it, you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. What would be the basis of, of why you might worship someone as God? I mean, would creation be the first thing you would go to? You're allowed to disagree if you want. I mean, it just is to spur conversation. Okay, okay, so, so it's the creativity of God the Father that is kind of what's being brought out here. Yeah. You asked a question. Where's Dave? Dave asked a question last week about Genesis. Do you remember? About how important is it that you believe the creation account in Genesis if you're going to call yourself a Christian, right? And, and this kind of gets to that because essentially what's going on is the 24 elders are saying, hey, we know you're God because we know that you created everything. And then all the rest spins out from there. It's like it's the most important, you know, initial observation and, and reality to acknowledge when you're deciding who the God is that you worship. And, and if we're going to try and suss out who's God, maybe the place to start is who made all of this? Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. You can't yeah, you can't just start here at this planet. You gotta broaden your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is it's stunning. You start looking at the cosmos. Yeah, you start looking at the cosmos of the universe and start trying to contemplate the distances involved and the powers involved and all of that and everything that's going on. I mean that's where your mind starts to kind of blow up when you start contemplating the creation of all of that. And so for the 24 elders, it's creation that becomes the, the critical thing about observing and defining who's God, what's God. And it, it becomes the one who created us. Now, 
Where else could you start, though? Like, where else would you go, hey, I want to know who God is. What would you point to? Okay, all right, so him, himself, that's kind of where we're at, right? So you're thinking the elders was a possibility. So why? What takes you there? Okay. So, so you look at the elders and you go, hey, these guys seem to have figured some stuff out, and the fact that they're worshiping him says something about this guy on the throne. I think there's something to that. What else? Somebody said Jesus back here? Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay, so it's this harmony of the Testaments, and if I'm looking for God, I can poke around in the Scriptures. This is Jesus' own saying, right? You you read the Scriptures because you think that in them you find salvation, and they all point to me. So we could use Jesus as a place to go. Where else? Pam. Okay. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so it's this distinction between, if you look at pagans, right? Pagans, oftentimes they worship multiple gods, each of which has kind of a really thin sliver of what they're responsible for. So you've got a god of the harvest, you've got a god of weather, you've got a god of the sea, you've got you know, all these different gods that are set up. And, and so contrast that with this idea that we've got a single entity who's kind of over and above all of that and seems to be more important and more powerful and more, more, <laughs> right? So that's one way to look at it. Where else would you go? There's no wrong answer, by the way. I'm just, and, and some of it is, think about this, if you're coming at it, you know, you guys come at all of this with a Christian perspective to begin with, right? I mean, that's just sort of the presupposition that I think almost everybody in this room walks in with. Leah. Oh, Plato in the cave. Do you all know this story? So, so Plato's story, and you can correct me if I get it wrong a little bit. It's been a long time since I read that. But, but basically, Plato tells a story, and he goes, hey, we're all kind of like... We're in a cave, and all we know is what we see in the cave, right? We don't have any perspective of anything beyond the cave. And, and we see on the wall of the cave these shadows moving around and stuff like that, and we can't really discern exactly what's happening. But if you back out a little bit, what you find out is that there's a light source outside the cave, and it's shining through things that are going on outside the cave, and so you get these little shadow things on the wall. They give you some vague idea of what's going on, but it's not the real story. It's not the whole thing. And we're like the person in the cave trying to suss out what's going on with these shadow things on the wall when the reality is outside the cave behind us. Is that pretty accurate? Okay. So, you know, so what... (laughs) the, The question then is, you know, we're trying to figure out what's God or who's God. You know, how do we with the knowledge that we have and the limited understanding that we have from these weird shadow things on the wall, where do we look and how do we find out who God is? Now you can say, you could say Jesus because he died on the cross for us and that introduces the idea of sin. But, you know, okay, what, well, what's sin? I've got to figure out what that is. Sin is going against what God says. Well, okay, well, who's God? And, you know, ultimately, it all leads you back. You've got to come to the question of who is God? 
Now, Luther answers the question, by the way, what is it to have a God? And, and he basically says anything that you believe and trust in for all good, that's your God. That's your God. A lot of things fit that description, don't they? Money is a real easy one. If I had a little bit more money, things would be a little bit smoother. Everything would be good. Money is your God. Security could be your God, you know. If I didn't have all this chaos in my life, if everything just went smoothly, then that would be good. That's what I crave. All right, security is your God. Maybe it's authority. Maybe it's position. Maybe it's your work. Our favorite God, our favorite God is me. Because things happen that feel like they're out of our control. And I want to be controlling. I want to have all this stuff and wrap it up. And I want to be the one who tells everything what it's supposed to do. I want to be God. It's our favorite God, far and away. In fact, that's the false God that the serpent appealed to when he came to Eve. Yeah, in fact, he says it. Hey, eat this stuff, and you'll know good and evil, and you'll be like God. And Eve went, ooh. I'm going to be like God. And we all know where that went. But, but the trick, I think, is, and the point of this is, the elders' worship focuses on the fact that God created all things rather than, say, the divine attributes that the four beings were worshiping. And, and the point is that they're showing that God is worthy of universal praise because Everything that exists came from him. And therefore, everything that exists owes their praise and worship and respect and honor and glory to God the Father because he's the creator. We wouldn't be here without him. It's, it's the understanding and the distinction that God is God and I am not. Right? And so that's kind of where they start. If we started with creation, then everything else makes sense. It all comes through. Hence, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And, and, you know, we get back around to John, and John does nothing but point back to Genesis to introduce us to Jesus so that we understand that he's God too. Okay? Any other thoughts on that or questions? You agree? Disagree? <laughs> you can disagree. It's all good. I think it's helpful in understanding you know, kind of where this is all coming from. Okay, so. Wow, that's a big long one. When the 24 elders cast down their crowns before the throne of God, and yes, casting crowns got their name from this, they suggest that our response to the gifts and blessing that we've received, oh, they suggest our response to the gifts and the blessings that we've received from God. The idea that they are, our gifts and blessings are given to us for a while, but to whom do we return them? To God, right. We give them back to God. How do we do that? That's the deeper question, right? All the cool stuff that God has blessed us with, we give it back to God somehow or another. How? Okay, so there's the, the financial part of it, of, of our financial stewardship, that some part of it goes back to God through our giving to the church. Okay, there's service, right? We participate in the, in the worship and the activities of the church. Our talents, okay, so the, the things that you're good at become things that are shared with 
God and others for the work of the church and beyond, really, even the service part of that. What else? Dave. Oh, hearts and minds, okay? So, so that we, we sort of make our, our perspective in line with God's. And then we pursue them. And we bring people into the church. How? You were in the early service, right? <laughs> right? It's just casting those seeds out, right? Sharing the gospel, telling people how God has been active in your life and things that he's done. So all of these are ways that we take the things that God gives to us and we give them back to God by, ironically or, or, or unexpectedly, by sharing them with other people so that they too can give back to God and receive those blessings. Yeah. Thoughts? So what Christy's saying was some of the most important gifts God has given us, I'm going to paraphrase a scripture passage, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These Forgiveness at the top of that list. These are some of the gifts that God has given to us that we get to share with other people. And in some situations, that's mind-blowing. Forgiveness, particularly. This is not the way the world works, right? It's probably the hardest one, too. Right. But that's, you know, those are gifts that God has given us, ways of, of, of interacting with our neighbors and of, of loving one another. You know, and, and it's really a case of the love that God gives to us then reflecting out to others. And that's the way we give it back to God then, I think. There you go. The two great commandments, which are love God and love your neighbor. And, and I have a friend... A pastor friend in Missouri, um, the, the slogan for their church is L-G-L-O-M-D. He throws the third one in. So it's love God, love others, make disciples. He grabs the Great Commission and throws it in there too. Love God, love others, make disciples. Any other thoughts on that? It's exciting to see the honor and glory given to God by the 24 elders. John. If they represent God's people throughout history, how is their reign predicted by the following? Somebody look those up, but don't read them yet. They represent God's people throughout history. Right. Good face. John looked at me like, huh? What? Okay, so where do we, how do we get to that? 24 is an interesting number. Right. Why 24? 24 is an interesting number. More interesting is 12 for two reasons. All right, what's the easiest way to do this from your perspective? The 12 tribes of Israel, right? So all of, all of Israel's sons and the 12 disciples. Okay? So the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the patriarchs, is generally kind of taken as, as um, shorthand for the Old Testament people of God. Those who trusted in God, those who came to him through Old Testament times, trusting in the promise that he had made, even though they never laid eyes on the, on the, the Christ himself. And then the 12 disciples become symbolic of 
the people of God from the New Testament times who actually had Jesus Christ and who came to know God and know His salvation through Jesus Christ personally. Okay? So take the Old Testament, all the people of the Old Testament, all the people of the New Testament, cram them all together, there's where you get 24. Does that make sense? So that, that's kind of, you know, it's one of those things in Revelation as you're going through here. Numbers kind of always have sort of meaning carried within them. And it's not always obvious. It's sometimes helpful to kind of break it down and figure out where it comes from. So, yes, John. Right. <laughs> so, as shorthand, it's, it's always just assumed as 12. And, of course, Judas sort of self-excludes right? And then, they, and then they elect Matthias to come in and replace him. Um, and the, clearly to the disciples, it was important that that number 12 was meaningful because once Judas was gone, they felt like they had to replace him. Now, there are those who would argue, by the way, that they jumped the gun. Have you ever heard this before? This is Acts chapter 2, I think, when the, the disciples all get together and they're like, dudes, um, you know, Judas is gone. We got to do something. We got to elect somebody to replace him and take his place now that he's gone. And they put up two guys. I think it's Barnabas and Matthias. And, and they cast lots and they pick Matthias and he becomes the 12th disciple. By the way, it's the last time we ever hear of him. He gets, you know, he gets put in that position and that's it. We don't hear anything more about what happened to him. Um, but the argument goes, and I, it's, you know, this is, it's academic stuff, right? It really doesn't matter. But the argument goes, God already had a 12th in mind. It just took him a minute and the road to Damascus to put him in his place. Because it's Paul. Paul kind of really becomes the 12th disciple, when, when Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and raises him up and he goes, hey, dude, your job is to go tell the Gentiles. Just something to think about. That, you know, maybe God had a plan. <laughs> and, and I think the cool thing that we can take from it is, yeah, God has a plan. And sometimes we muck things up and he does it anyway. <laughs> he makes it happen anyway. It's going to come to pass. All right, any other thoughts on that? Wait, oh, so the question was, um, if, if the 24 are God's people throughout history, how's their reign predicted by the following? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Did somebody find it? Go. Okay, so if we endure, we also, meaning Christians, followers of Christ, will reign with him. That fits. What about 1 Corinthians 6, 2? This is great. Okay, Are you, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, saints, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now, Paul says the saints will judge the world. What does he mean by that? Because I think we come into that with a particular perspective or thought process about what it means to judge the world, right? And I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Because in that context of judging the world, who's doing the judging? 
Give me a Sunday school answer. The Sunday school answer, sorry. Jesus, right. That it's Jesus who judges the world, right? And for those of us who are in Christ, then, you know, the goats and the lambs, the right and the left, ones who are in Christ, it doesn't matter what you do, all that kind of stuff. So understand what Paul is talking about. If you go back and look at the context of 1 Corinthians 6, what he's actually talking about is squabbles and arguments within the church, okay? And this idea of judging has long, long history throughout the Old Testament. Remember, there's a book of the Bible called Judges. Before there was a king, a big screw-up of the Israelites, there were judges. There were men who were placed in their role to serve as arbitrators, mediators, for the squabbles that were bound to come up among God's people. And so the judges sat to help settle those things and to come to conclusions and to, you know, serve justice and all that kind of stuff. And, and so those were highly placed, revered men within history who served that role on God's behalf, placed as prophets to serve as judges. And women, Deborah too. Um, then <laughs> the Israelites at some point looked around. And they went, oh, all these other countries around us, all these other nations have kings. Oh, that'd be cool. We want a king too. And this is when Samuel was a judge, right? <laughs> and Samuel was like, he goes in prayer to God, and he was like, um, they want a king. And God's like, wow, that's a, that's a really bad idea. Because the only reason they wanted a king was so they could be like everybody else. This, like, are there any modern-day parallels to this? No, but they wanted a king to be like everybody else, and God was like, oh my gosh, that's stupid. They have a king. It's me. But they insisted, and God was like, fine, I'll give them a king. Tell them it's going to be a wreck. Nothing good is going to come of this, but all right, if you want a king, I'll give you a king. Fine. So they raise up Saul. He was a pretty crappy king. Then they get David. That was good. Solomon was good. And then read through First and Second Kings. There were a lot of really bad kings. But so you've got this whole history of, of judges like way, way, way back in the before time. And then Paul's writing into a, into a culture where secular judges kind of have arisen again. You know, in Roman times, you've got this idea of courts and judges and all that kind of stuff from a secular perspective, not from a, from a you know, religious perspective. And, and what's happening is you've got a bunch of Christians who should be able to work out their differences with one another because of the two great laws, right? Love God and love others. We should be able to figure this stuff out among ourselves. And they weren't. They were suing brothers and sisters in Christ and taking them before secular courts to make decisions that had ramifications for their life together as Christians. And Paul was like, this will sound really familiar to the whole king thing, Paul was like, guys, just because they do it doesn't mean you have to do it that way. And his point was, we've had all these judges in history and you guys are going to serve in that role one day too. Even though I, it's weird to me because like in heaven, everything will be perfect. There won't be any sin. Will there be anything to judge? 
even? I don't know. But he's chastising them for taking disputes before secular courts rather than working things out within the church and according to our faith and the community into which God has called us, a community which is marked first and foremost by forgiveness and not punishment. We live in a community today that the secular community anyway is essentially marked by all law and no grace. That's what this whole cancel culture thing is. Right? Anything you did wrong ever will be thrown in your face and you will be held responsible for it and there is no grace and there are no, you know, there is no forgiveness and there is nothing that allows the past to live in the past anymore. That's what we live in today. You guys look around, you see it. And so Paul's point is, God called you into a community that's different, that doesn't work like the rest of the world does. Maybe we should live like that and actually espouse the values that God has given to us. Forgiveness, love, compassion. You know, all the things that the second table of the law tells us about. Okay? Thoughts, questions? That's, that's a Matthew 18 thing, right? This idea of, of, you know, how do you, if somebody's going off the rails, right, how do we help bring them back? Those of you who are faithful need to gently restore them. And so th there is a sense that we keep each other kind of headed in the right direction. And that's judging in a sense, yeah. It is, it is. Um, and, and importantly, in love, right, in, in keeping somebody aligned with what God has in mind for them and how God expects us to interact with one another. Yes. Yeah, so there's a positive side to judging. There, there's a, another great passage, and, and here's my turn. I can't quote to you exactly where it comes from. I think it's Paul wrote it. But, but I love it. He goes, he goes, you know, by the measure, by the measure with which you judge others, May you be judged. What is it? Romans 9, maybe? That sounds about right. Romans 9, maybe? But it's, it's on a par for me in terms of terror from, from God's Word with, with the Lord's Prayer where it says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our trespasses. Because essentially, stop and think for a second. What are we saying when we say that? Dear God, would you please forgive me in the same way that I forgive everyone else? Don't do that. <laughs> like, I'm really bad at that. And so if that's my request of God, I'd, wow, if you stop and think about it. And, and I think the aha moment that, that Jesus hopes we take from that is, ah, but he doesn't. <laughs> he actually forgives you perfectly, not in the same way that you forgive others. But it might be good if you tried to emulate that. And I think that's kind of where the prayer is pulling us to, to get to, to try to be. Yes? What, the Lutheran church is very judgmental? Are there legalists 
in the Lutheran church or in the Presbyterian church or in the Baptist church or in the Methodist church or in the... Yeah, I have heard that before, though. I have heard that before. Right. Right. Yeah, but I, some people do. And, th- you know, that's the thing about the law is that we don't want to hear the law because the law always condemns. It always presses down on us. It always, you know, knocks us down. At, but hopefully also shows us our need for a Savior, pointing us to Christ so that the gospel can come in and do its work. But so the, the, by the method, by the measure by which you judge, then you shall be judged is also terrifying because essentially what it's saying is as harsh as you are on everybody else, so also it ought to be harsh on you. Yike. And that's one of those things that sometimes makes you stop and go, okay, maybe I need to be a little less negatively judgmental of other people because they got hard stuff going on too. Matthew 25:23 we're talking about this rain uh, being predicted in scripture. Matthew 25:23 Jesus said so these are red letters. His master said to him, "Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." That's from the parable of the talents. Those are the words of the man who entrusted his servants with his property praising the second one who had turned, in his, turned his two talents into four. Um, and the response then was that he was given great responsibility. So all of these passages kind of pointing forward then to the, the reason that you got these 24 elders sitting on thrones around the throne of God the Father. Any questions about that? Does the vision of God's throne appear frightening, or comforting, or both? And why? What do you think? Okay. So if it's frightening, you might have something you need to work on. Yeah. So it could, I, I could, you can see the argument for frightening, right? You know, the peals of thunder and the lightning and all that kind of... It's kind of overwhelming. We talked about that last week. Fascinating is a great word for it. Okay, so that, that, does that go along with comforting? Probably. <laughs> Fascinating. So I can see where frightening comes from, but I think you're right, Elaine, that, that if, if it's pure fright that it gives in you, then, you know, maybe that's a call to understand it better. What about comforting? Who, you good with comforting? Okay. Oh, okay, okay. So, and I think the, the thought in the back of your head of it's comforting is, hey, this is God, and I read in a book somewhere that if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? So then it, it's this certainty that this immense power is actually on your side, that God's the good guy, and that he cares about me, and that he loves me, and that, he's gonna, that he sent his son for me. So that, I think that's where comforting comes from. Could it be both? Yeah, yeah, it could be both. I mean, which, there we go. That brings us right back to the devotion this morning, right? The whole saint and sinner thing. Because I think, well, Elaine had to step out, but where Elaine was kind of going with it is if it, if it appears frightening, that's the sinner side kind of reacting to it. The fact that we have both all the time, I could see that that then would be both frightening 
and comforting. I know it. Any other thoughts on that? I wrote, I put both. <laughs> I said it's frightening because it's clear that you're in the presence of supreme power, but it's comforting because it's consistent with what we might expect and because the elders are able to worship God directly before his throne. Remember, we're getting this glimpse into heaven that we wouldn't otherwise have. And so it's comforting in the sense that it goes, hey, you know, here's a little glimpse into the future of, of eternal life with God and with Christ that we're going to have, that we can actually be in God's presence and not be terrified that we'll be killed because of it. Um, so it's comforting to know that there's no danger to us because of Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay. Dave. Yes. The heavens were part of God's creation. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I, yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I mean, the, the heavens are part of God's creation. And we look at the heavens, you know, that we can see with our eyes and with telescopes and all that kind of business. And it's mind-blowing. Just incredible to look at the stars in the sky and all of the universe and everything that's out there. And in a sense, what we're getting here, thanks to John and his experience, is a, another glimpse of God's creation that we might not otherwise have seen. And, and I think it's perfectly reasonable to go, John really had some trouble explaining it because you read through this and you're like, what the heck was he looking at? But... I think that makes sense. I mean, he's seeing something that is, is very nearly impossible to wrap your arms around and explain to somebody else. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you look at the whole universe and you kind of feel really, really, really small understanding the scope of all of creation. And yet, and yet, God loved you so much, he sent his son to die for you, you know? All right. Any last thoughts? I'll give you all the last word before I take the last word. Okay. We'll pick up there next time. Um, that gives us three more questions on that one, so we'll probably drift into the next lesson, Chapter 5, beyond that. Um, I will be, just so everybody knows, I will be out of town this week. Um but if you have a need for pastoral care or whatever, call the church office and they will get you connected to somebody who can help. Um, we're going to be in Baltimore visiting with my daughter. So be nice to get away. We can actually get on an airplane, I think. <laughs> All right, let's close with a prayer. Don't, don't try to open the door. That's true. That's not allowed. <laughs> Lord God, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for... Um, everything. Thank you for all of your creation. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the salvation that we have through him. Thank you for your word preserved for us through time so that we can um, know who you are and understand you a little bit better. Um, Lord God, we just pray that you would continue to work uh, in each of us, um, deepen our faith, draw us ever closer to you, um, and just help keep us pointed on the path that you want us to be on. Um, we ask you, as we go out into the world, that you would um, open our mouths to share the amazing things that you have done so that others might come to the knowledge of the truth 
and also be saved. So we'll entrust it all to you, um, and we ask it all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.